0: Job 38. we read that all things have been created by the Son and for the Son, by Christ. And thus, we go to when the Lord answers Job in Job 38, remembering that the actions which are described here are things um, which were done through the Son, the Son of God. And we also pay attention to verse 7, when it says the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation of the world. And uh, those sons of God, of course, we think then also of the angels who sing for joy at the Incarnation. But give your attention to God's holy word, Job 38, verses 1 through 18. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And cause the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and then go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We'll focus on verses 8 through 14, but we'll read through to verse 21, Luke 2, verses 8 through 21, giving most of our attention to verses 8 through 14 this morning. Here once again the reading of God's holy word, for the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Luke 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the, an- given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to God in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, then open up our minds and our ears to your word. Build us up through it that we may live for you and for your glory. Bind our hearts together in love as well and humble us as we stand before your eternal word and truth. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ to live and die for us and for sending the Spirit when he ascended on high We ask, O triune God, that you would be honored in this place. In Christ's name, amen. Beloved people of God, let's consider these things together for a few moments this morning. The angels shouted for joy at creation, and then they sing for joy at the incarnation. This may have been partially at least because they were able to witness creation as we see there in Job chapter 38. So they have the, the great advantage of seeing that contrast when they, when they glimpse the humility of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This might be something akin to like watching a, a, a powerful king of a, of a great and glorious kingdom leave his palace and, and really actually leave his life behind, but move to the, the, the poorest district of his kingdom, live with them and like them, in order to try to develop the, the, the economy, the local economy of that district. That kind of humility, but of course, even much beyond that, much greater than that, is what you see at the incarnation. And the angels had a glimpse of that, for they were the ones who shouted for joy when God hung the world on nothing and laid its foundations. So they say glory to God in the highest at the incarnation. We have an advantage as well, though. It's not the same. We weren't there when God laid the the cornerstone of the earth, Uh, but we know something that the angels do not know intimately. There's something that the angels witness and see, but they don't know it the way that we do, and that's redemption, the forgiveness of sins, understanding and knowing something of the the condemnation in which we were outside of Christ and the, the, the glory, the blessedness that comes to us In Jesus Christ. These are important things that we need to work at grasping and understanding even more. To truly work at grasping these things takes effort. We have to consider the glory and the beauty of Christ. We have to consider our brokenness and and our sinful condition. And that's not something that our, our overly therapeutic culture would embrace to spend time thinking about the sinfulness of our condition, to to spend time seeking God's uh, blessing and grace so that we would understand something more of our condemnation in sin. That's something that our our culture would mostly be uh, allergic to. Nor is it easy in our culture and in our time to, to take time to think about these things amidst our constant distractions, especially in this time of the year. There's so much that's going on. And so oftentimes, spiritual uh, contemplation and meditation takes a back seat in the busiest times of, of the year. But if we take the time and, and, and give the effort towards these things, to understand the depths of, of redemption, and to grow in our gratitude and thankfulness for it, with God's gracious help, we will say, like the angels, Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God. In the highest. Let's consider these things together. The first movement for our consideration today is a stunning reality, a stunning reality by which we mean something that's real, something that really happened in time and in space. The incarnation is a stunning reality. This is a beautiful passage that we read. Most of us have most of that passage memorized. Luke 2, especially 8 through 14, that, uh, that passage that Linus recites in A Charlie Brown Christmas. Most of us probably know the, the King James language to at best. We know it. It's beautiful, isn't it? But yet it's concise. It has a, a conspicuous absence of details. It's, it's like the best four-ounce steak that you ever had. Right? Every, every bite is absolutely glorious, but when you finish it, you're, you're certain that you could easily have a, another one. It's something like that. It's savory, and yet we feel that there are uh, curiosities we have that we wish could be answered. The facts of the incarnation are announced, but then the scriptures, as Alfred Edersheim says, draw a veil around the mystery of the incarnation of Christ. And and this reminds us why we have the gospel accounts. We, We don't have the gospel accounts so that we can have a biography of Jesus that answers all of our curiosities about him. We don't have, and this is part of our reformed tradition, we don't have descriptions of what he looked like so that we can uh, go down rabbit holes and try to, to satisfy all of our human and oftentimes sinful curiosities. The Gospels were written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might have life in his name. The end of the Gospel of John tells us why at least that Gospel was written and we see those characteristics in all of the other ones. These are written so that you may believe in Jesus and trust in him. And accept what his work means for sinners. And seeing it this way and considering it, 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 that's a very fitting thing, isn't it, for the incarnation. When you think about the glory of the Son of God and the way that the Gospels understate uh, the magnitude of what's going on in the incarnation. Even when you think about Jesus interacting with other people who who are sinners, who are sinful. Oftentimes the Gospels have to understate that. And so the account of his birth is fitting in that sense, that it's, it's understated uh, relative to his natural glory. But one of the things about the, the accounts of the Gospels, and certainly the account, the account in the Gospel of Luke, is that it's a strong tip of the cap to the truthfulness of all that we read here. It approves the, uh, these accounts to be true. Consider messianic expectations at the time of Christ's birth. If uh, Jewish people were to get together and, and were to form a legend around the birth of the Messiah, it would not have read like how Jesus is born. The parents of the Messiah being forced into this kind of situation where uh, they're, they're put outside and in the presence of, of, of animals in order to have the birth finally take place, a cave, a manger, being forced into this kind of situation? Alfred Edersheim, again, in his classic, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he says that tradition, traditions and legends tend to have two common features, and the first is this, that the hero of the story is surrounded with a halo of glory. Everything about the story kind of props up who he is, and secondly, details, uh, immense details are supplied in order to satisfy human curiosity. And in both of these things, the story of Jesus departs from that markedly, doesn't it? We don't have those kinds of details. And it's not a halo of glory placed around these, uh, the circumstances of Jesus' birth. So does that mean that it's false? No. It actually shows that it is true. For what story that would have been crafted by the human mind would have been like this. And certainly, even faithful Jews would have manufactured the birth story of their Messiah to begin in a vastly different way than the way we read in Luke chapter 2. It's kind of like hearing a story or something that happened and you say, that's too weird to not be true. That's something that nobody would have made up. You ever heard a story like that? You say, it's too weird to not be true. That's something like the birth and the advent of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's a story that never would have been crafted. And so it shows, and it ought to fill us with confidence, as to the truthfulness of this story. And so if he came, that means he's coming. It's a stunning reality because it really happened. The Son of God took on human flesh just in this way. And so if he came, he's coming. If he came, he's coming. And that's really what we mean when we say Advent, isn't it? It's easy to be lost in the Christmas season, cultural Christmas that is. What is it that our society wants Christmas to be? A gathering around things that may be good when kept in their proper place, but at their worst they distract from the best things. One author puts it this way, a red-nosed reindeer, a talking snowman, chestnuts roasting, consumers consuming, all to take our minds away from the dread advent of the Lord when we will see his face and all that we wish would stay hidden will be laid bare in the light. If he came, then he's coming. And so what do we need to be at this time of the year? We remind ourselves to be ready and waiting for the king to come. Rather than being lost in distraction, we, we remind ourselves that, yes, it's a stunning reality that Jesus came, and that ought to remind us to keep our lamps filled, our wicks trimmed, our, girds lo- uh, our, our loins girded up, and ready for the advent of our King. Read the parable of the virgins in Matthew chapter 25. Five virgins take a flask of oil for their lamps The other five do not, they are not ready, and thus they are shut out when the bridegroom comes. A passage that I think is is so poignant that Jesus says in Mark 13 concerning that second advent of our king, it says this, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Stay spiritually alert, faithful and trusting in Christ, not being lulled to sleep spiritually. We make ourselves ready. We make ourselves ready through the grace of God and through the gospel, giving ourselves to all of these things, to his word that he would build us up so that we would be ready for our King to come. And we make ourselves ready through the redemption story, don't we? And so that's the second movement this morning, stunning redemption, stunning reality, stunning redemption. The salvation that we have in Jesus Christ must never get old to our ears. It must always ring in your ear until you breathe your last breath. There's only one other time uh, in the scriptures where we have this record, a a, a specific record of the angels worshiping. That would be Isaiah chapter 6, and then also what we read in, in Job 38, right? At least we hear there of the angels shouting for joy at creation. Thomas Brooks says this, the one who crowned the heavens with stars was himself crowned With thorns. Of course, in the incarnation story, what are we working to understand and to grasp? The enormity of the divinity of Christ, the glory of Christ, his pre existence, his eternality as the second person of the Trinity taking on human flesh. There there is mystery shrouded around this. Things, depths that we will never fully grasp in this earth, on this life, (laughs) in this life and on this earth. These are things that we will not fully understand. It's a wonder that the angels who shouted at, it's no wonder that the angels who shout at that moment now sing at this moment to see the glory of creation and then the surpassing glory of the incarnation. What do the angels announce? Well, they say this is good news. Why is it good news? Because of the truth of our sinfulness. It's good news of great joy. Why is it good news of of great joy? Because anyone who glimpses the truth of the gospel will be filled with joy. Anyone who understands the desperate condition their sin puts them in is filled with joy to hear of deliverance. It's for all the people. It's unto you, the angels say, as they say that to the shepherds. They say it's here in the city of David. That means that the, the Messiah is the king. Right? That's why there is that, uh, that naming of the city of David. This is one who will sit on David's throne. He is a savior. He is Christ. He is the Lord. Again, a savior from what? From from sin and sinfulness. From our enemies. Who is our greatest enemy? Who are our greatest enemies? Sin and Satan and death. He has come to deliver us ultimately from those things, not from the hands primarily of the Philistines, the surrounding peoples, sin and death and Satan. He is Christ. He is the anointed one of God. He has been sent from God in order to accomplish this redemption. He is the Lord and as we see that title ascribed to Jesus over and over and over again, and as we consider the way that the term Lord, kurios, was used in the Old Testament Septuagint, we see that it becomes an undeniable affirmation of the deity of Christ. To say that Christ is Lord is to say that he is God in the flesh. All of this leads to that great announcement of peace That has come in this Messiah or that will come in the Messiah. The peace that he brings is not a peace that sets all of the world at peace with one another. In fact, Christ becomes a great dividing line, doesn't he? But what happens in his person and work is we are set at peace with God. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God. And God is the one with whom we have to do in this life and the next. He is the only judge. And in Christ, we are set at peace with him. This announcement that the angels bring, uh, they, they give it to the shepherds. And let's take a closer look at, at these shepherds. Now, these are not ordinary shepherds is what you need to understand. They were near Bethlehem. The flocks they watched were not ordinary sheep. These would have been pastures that are closer to the village than normal wilderness pastures that uh, normal sheep would have been, uh, would have been grazing in. But these flocks would be raised specifically for temple sacrifices. These would have been on the road to Jerusalem, and these lambs would have been being raised so that they could be specifically used in temple worship. And so these shepherds would have been those who raised these temple flocks year, all year round. They would be keepers of the lambs who would take away sins under the old covenant worship. And so it is no accident, of course, nothing is, but here, of course, it's no accident that those who hear of the announcement of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world are those who are raising the lambs that pointed to Christ. And so who better to go and proclaim this news that the angels bring? We read later on in the next passage that they go and make known what had been told them. They announce the coming of the Messiah, and they would have had this interesting picture. Would they have a full understanding? No, of course not. But they would have had this interesting window into the idea of a lamb that takes away sin. And there are interesting pointers in the announcement of the angel that make us think about lambs, swaddling cloths, when those who raised the temple flocks uh, helped to deliver a new baby lamb. And if it seemed like it could be one that was without blemish and so used for special sacrifices, a lamb without blemish, they often would swaddle that lamb so that it would not incur any injuries or blemishes through the thrashing around that a newborn animal often does. This lying in a manger would have made them think of the the times when uh, a mother lamb is giving birth, and they would withdraw into a cave near the pasture. So the glory and the beauty of this is hard to overstate to the believing heart. They become proclaimers of these very things. They're they're forerunners to preachers, really. And preachers are especially fitting figures to announce the gospel of Christ, not because of their special giftedness or anything like that, and of course God does gift those who preach the gospel to do so and to proclaim it, but because preachers know something of forgiveness. A preacher is not qualified to preach if he does not know the sins from which he has been saved in Jesus Christ. And so, angels announce these things, but again, angels don't have an intimacy with the idea of the forgiveness of sins. Why is it that preachers are especially qualified to do this? Because we know we are sinners who need to be saved. Boys and girls, Pastor Dan is a sinner, and he is far from perfect. And what makes him love the gospel so much is that he knows he needs Jesus to save him. The shepherds would have been intimately involved with this idea of redemption from sin through the blood of the Lamb. And so they become these forerunners to those who would proclaim. The angels say glory to God in the highest. And if we are growing in our love for Jesus, we too will say it. So why do we say it, and why should we want to say glory to God in the highest? Well, we do for three reasons, really, for God, for the goodness of God, for the wisdom of God, and for the power of God. The goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God. First, the goodness of God. As we have been saying, redemption outstrips the glory of creation, It's one thing that God spoke the world into existence out of nothing. It's another thing that he takes rebellious sinners running from him and plucks them up by his grace and causes them uh, to be his sons and daughters. God does not just restore us to fellowship with him. He gives us life abundant. He gives us life eternal. The son of heaven came to earth so that the sons of earth might be welcome in heaven. The Son of heaven came to earth so that the sons of earth might be welcome in heaven. And this produces for us, when we see the goodness of God and forgiveness, it produces in us a gospel humility and confidence. What do I mean by that? When we start to glimpse something of what it means that God has forgiven us of our sins and caused us to be declared righteous in Jesus Christ... What we realize is that we are unworthy of the air that we breathe. In and of ourselves, we can claim nothing. We're unworthy of the very air that we breathe, and yet we are filled with confidence that in faith we can claim the highest blessings of God's grace. All that he promises to give to us in Christ, we confidently lay hold of that and believe that we will uh, come to share in those blessings, not because of ourselves, because God has said it to us. There is nothing that is spiritually pious, About constantly saying we will not, uh, we we, we will be unworthy of receiving those things that come to us in Christ and making it, uh, causing us to despair about those things. Of course, we don't deserve them in ourselves, but we confidently lay hold of what God gives to us in Jesus Christ. That is understanding the gospel. See, boys and girls, when you hear talk of of Santa Claus and being on the, the naughty and the nice list and all of those things, It's a stark contrast from grace because in grace we understand that we don't deserve anything. We're never on the nice list in and of ourselves, but grace causes us to stand before God and be declared forgiven and righteous. So we praise God for his goodness. We praise God for his wisdom. And what we mean by that this morning, or what I want us to think about that this morning, is that the gospel comes to our hearts and our minds, and it causes us to be so floored by the grace of God that we joyfully and gladly give him all that we are and all that we have. John Newton says this, the knowledge of God's mercy, when revealed to the sinner's heart, subdues his enmity and constrains him to throw down his arms and to make an unreserved submission and surrender of himself. It forms him to a temper of love and disposes him to cheerful obedience. God gives himself to us so that we might rightly give ourselves to him. God gives himself to us so that we might rightly give ourselves to him. We understand we need to be cleansed. We understand we need to be renewed. But then cleansed and renewed, because we are floored by the grace of God, we joyfully surrender all that we have and all that we are. So we praise him for his goodness, his wisdom, and lastly, his power. We praise him because of his power. For here we think of the the, the power, the sovereignty that it took to lead all of human history to Jesus Christ and bring everything together. Acts 4 talks about this. Truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, uh, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God knew what he was doing in sending the Son. And all of those things were never in doubt. It never was going to overcome the sovereignty and the power of God. So that leads us to our final consideration a stunning rule and reign. Stunning reality, stunning redemption, stunning rule and reign. Return just as we close to the wonder of the shepherds, the wonder of the shepherds as they, they approach the manger. We can only imagine what might have filled their minds and hearts. What were they thinking? We can only imagine. But one thing that they knew for sure was that this baby had an importance which could not be overstated. (laughs) They had just seen the host of heaven announce his birth. And so one author so beautifully puts it uh, when he says this. It all seemed so strange that on such a slender thread as the feeble throb of an infant life, the salvation of the world should hang. No special watch over its safety, no better shelter provided it than a stable, no other cradle than a manger. If you or I were tasked with protecting the Christ child, keeping watch over him, think of the measures that we would take. If we understood the magnitude of this salvation, think of what a, a new mother does in bringing a, a newborn baby out of the hospital. And oftentimes, uh, they will sit in the back seat with the baby on the ride home. That can oftentimes be a nervy ride home for any of you parents who have, who have driven home from the hospital. I remember one time uh, we were in a, a doctor's office and there was a mom who had been a mom for about three or four weeks and she still was doing the, the, the back seat ride along as uh, she and her husband got in the car pulling away from the office. I thought that was, that was precious. But think about the, the precautions we would take. The Christ child, and here the shepherds approach the manger, and they think the salvation of the world is dependent upon this baby, this baby whose importance could not be overstated, announced by the host of heaven, lying in a manger, but his lot would never, was never in doubt. He would go to the cross 33 years later. He would defeat sin and death. He would be raised to heaven to reign there as he is doing now. It reminds us of the power of God to create, to sustain, to direct, and to save. If God has the power to bring Christ from the stable to his right hand in glory, has he not the power to save you and bring you home to himself. Oftentimes throughout the history of the church, the church has seemed to be surviving on a slender thread. It has gone throughout the world with nothing but a message to declare, nothing but a gospel to proclaim, yet God has sustained her. The same could often be said for you or for me. Many times our survival as Christians has possibly uh, teetered dangerously, and yet here we are. Think of your own life and times that you were filled with doubts, times that your life was in crisis. Yet here we are. The God of the manger is our God in Jesus Christ. Reminds me of Psalm 127, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. If God governs all the universe, can't he bring you home to himself? Can't he forgive your sin? Can't he bring you to eternal blessedness? Of course he can. The story of Jesus is a stunning reality. really happened. The king has come. He's coming. It's a stunning redemption when you start to grasp the depth of your sin and the wideness of God's grace. And it reminds us of the stunning rule and reign, the power and the sovereignty of God to save the world on such a slender thread, and to sustain all of us by his grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful. We praise you for uh, these wonderful reminders, cause us to stand in grace, to give you all of the glory, to thank you and praise you for it. We thank you uh, for Christ, for the life he lived, the death he died for us. And we ask, oh Father, that you will cause all of these things Uh, to be driven home into our hearts by your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And we stand together now and sing.